Hi, HR Nation. Welcome back to the HR Leaders Podcast, the show where we explore the future of work with industry experts and HR executives in the world's leading global brands. Today, we have some special guests on the show. We're joined by Ed and Peter Shine, founders of the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute, to discuss their best-selling book, Humble Inquiry, The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling. Welcome to the show. How are you both? Thanks for having us. Glad to be here and have a chance to talk. Amazing, amazing. Where, where are you both tuning in from, actually? I should probably ask that question. We are in uh, in the Bay Area. We're, we're uh, sort of just north of the Stanford campus. Um, so Palo Alto, Menlo Park, it's kind of Silicon Valley. It's academia. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's our own little bubble here. Yeah. <laughs> Ed, Ed, have, do, tell me the truth, Ed. Have you read all of those books behind you on that on those shelves? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I haven't. I keep the library for the in case I need them. <laughs> Not that I've read them all. Uh, I hate going to the library, so I'd rather have it all right here. <laughs> it's a good plan as well. I, I would have been very impressed if you had read all of those. <laughs> Well, what I find so humbling is is that I guess after the you know whatever seventy years of academia that that experience that Ed has, he's very good at sort of um, taking a three hundred page book and sort of quickly absorbing it in about fifteen minutes, and then being able to say I need to I need to worry about this book or I don't need to worry about this book. That that uh, that fast assessment skill, I think you must learn that very on early on in professorship. Yeah. I can't say I have that skill. There <laughs> is so much out there. That's the only way these days. You can't read everything. It's true. I've now turned to audiobooks and I do scroll through and quickly consume parts of chapters to see if it's worth continuing to, uh, along that as well. So I'm kind of learning that skill, but I find it easier to do it with audiobooks. Uh, as quick as possible um, as well. Otherwise, there's way too much out there to consume, as you said. Um, um, Ed. Fortunately, our publisher does audio books. That's oh. very important. <laughs> it is very much. Peter, tell, us, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your, your dad's work and the focus of your work um, over the past, yeah. you know, as many years as you've been doing this. Yeah. Uh, well, so quickly, we've been doing uh, what we're doing right now for about five or six years. Um, I had a long career in Silicon Valley doing corporate development and strategy at big companies and small companies. But in 2015, we, you know, I was doing consulting projects, so my my uh, my plan was flexible. And Ed and I started talking about some of the things that really mattered to us, um, good things and bad things, and. Um, that led to the um, the work that ultimately became the Humble Leadership book. But we also had some collaborating that we wanted to do on culture books. And so, um, uh, it, you know, since 2015 and now, we've written two culture books together and um, the Humble Leadership and new editions of Humble Inquiry. Um, and really, the, the the idea here is that we're synthesizing my experience in technology companies with Ed's experience um, consulting with technology companies and large multinationals, 
as well as all of the years teaching management at the MIT Sloan School. Um, the other thing that I should say is that we sort of joke that um, at some level we could say that social anthropology is the family business. We, <laughs> when I was an undergrad at Stanford in the uh, early 80s, I was studying social anthropology. My older sister was pursuing her PhD in cultural anthropology, and Ed was writing his first uh, organizational culture book. So um, it's sort of fun to reflect on that and say we were all sort of finding our, you know, the, the center of gravity that, that uh, we finally were able to really start putting together in these books uh, over the last few years. Amazing. So it truly is in the blood, the family yeah, blood. Yeah, it's in the blood. Or <laughs> it's, it's certainly uh, in the nurture, probably in the nature as well. We'll see what happens with my kids. Yeah. Just just a random thing I picked up on, obviously. How is it called working with your dad? And you obviously you refer to your dad as Ed on the on on the calls. And I've listened to a lot of your interviews. Was that a conscious decision for you when you have interviews and do the things that you call it's, say Ed rather than Dad? I, I just it's really random question. Right. That when we're referring <laughs> to each other in public, I probably don't refer to him as dad. Um but yeah. uh, you know, we we've always um been able to talk to each other. Yeah. And we've always been able to kind of sort of lay it out and be open and trusting of each other. And so um, I would say that um, there was a little leap of faith that we'd able be, be able to write together, but it, it wasn't hard to work together. Yeah. We found that pretty easy from the beginning. Amazing. Well, you both bond over that shared passion, right? And uh, do, so. do you have an impact that your work's having on millions of people around the world? So um, Ed, t could you tell our listeners, you know, what is humble leadership? Could you kind of define that for I, everyone? I will get to that in a minute, but I do need to add a footnote to what Peter said that uh, it's very important for people to realize what this relationship does for me. Namely, it not only creates a collaborator, but it gives me a uh, multi-generational outlook at a time when the world is changing very rapidly. And where I discover that where I most need help is in uh, not, not talking from my old perspective, but seeing what, let's take humble leadership, I'll use that as a segue, <clears throat> Humble Leadership, when I wrote it in 2013. Humble Inquiry. Uh, no, I mean Humble Inquiry. Right. I wrote Humble Inquiry in 2013. What just happened is important, uh, that Peter is there in a friendly way to uh, straighten me out when I fall into the wrong generation or the wrong, uh, the wrong context. When I first wrote it, it was all about helping uh, people. And in the meantime, as we now revised Humble Inquiry, we realized that because so much has changed in the world, the need to ask and inquire now is not just about building a helping relationship. It's about even finding out what's going on basically in a world in which what is factual, what is opinion, uh, what we can trust, what we cannot, has become a major issue. And I think the real need for humble inquiry 
is just to figure out what's going on before we leap in and think we know the answer and tell people stuff. So at that level, humble inquiry is a fundamental need for today. Fantastic. And and then how, do, if people ask the question of how is humble leadership new and different from other leadership uh, styles, uh, you know, out there or methods, should we say? Well, the first place to tackle that is to say, that humble leadership is based on having a relationship with the people above you, beside you, and especially below you, and using humble inquiry to find out what they know and what they see that informs your joint co-determination of what's going on and what you should do. I think humble leadership is above all uh, collective uh, leadership. It's uh, leadership as a group sport uh, because you never know enough as an individual to be able to tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. Well, or you, you, you may well believe you, you know enough to tell people what to do and then you make a, you know, a, horrible mistake and end up, you know, costing your company something dramatic or, or, you know, the, the point being that, um, the group ultimately knows more than you do and, uh, humility in the, in the humble leadership sense means accepting that, um, in the here and now you don't know everything and you're, your your greatest goal your most important goal as a leader is to draw out uh in a safe um and collective environment with your groups with the teams you work with the groups you work with what people know so that you can collectively make the best decisions mm -hmm. and i think that's just it, it a little bit belies the um the old myth of sort of the the command and control manager who can always ask a question and get an answer. And humble leadership is begging people to think about how do you get answers to the questions you don't ask? And that's by building a substrate of openness and trust so that people can share something they know um, uh, that may be relevant. And you all figure out together whether some something that somebody introduces into a conversation is relevant or not and or not but we all know how to do that that's that's just a basic conversational skill that we bring with us to work we just have to be ready to sort of tap it rather than falling into the you know the roles and hierarchical relationships that uh, may have started out it may be the reason we got to an organization but then we realize it's my, my value add isn't in my role. It's in the relationships that I build around my, my mm -hmm. position. Uh, in, in you know, I, I want to add something else to this that's very critical. I think it's particularly important to think in these terms for people who, whose role is to be an expert. For example, the chief engineer or the the uh, HR head, where 
managers and leaders go to them and say, give me answers and uh, give me, tell me what to do. And when the experts try to do that, they discover to their dismay that that's not in the end really helpful. That what they above all <clears throat> have to, to learn is that though they may be expert in some knowledge area by definition, that expertise doesn't necessarily lead to good interventions in organizational life. So where I think we have the most impact is, for example, with HR leaders to tell them, don't let management trap you into producing programs and processes that sound good, but you will discover you've been sidelined and that what you really needed to do is to develop a relationship with the person who asked you for help and co-determine with that person, with that leader, with that manager, how your expertise can be useful. Mm -hmm. Love that. Um, from a practical sense then, what are some steps or things that we can do to become a humble leader? Uh, uh, well, I'll start with some, you know, everyday um, group oriented and also individually oriented, um, you know, concepts or reframings. Uh, you know, I sometimes joke, you know, step away from the agenda. Because so often we find out in a meeting that we, we get there and within five minutes or less, we're plowing right into the agenda and uh, getting, getting that work done, getting that, you know, systematic, you know, working through the technical issues of our, uh, you know, of our roles and responsibilities and completely missing the context, completely missing what's actually going on. You know, supposing we, we you know, went into a meeting the day after George Floyd was murdered and went straight into the agenda and didn't allow people the space or the safety to process what was going on. I mean, it was a, it was a horribly traumatic event. Or, you know, the, the, the day that the U.S. passed half a million people um, dead of coronavirus, these things are happening. People are whole people that come to work. And yes, they're expected to do their thing at work. But you're also, you know, you know, especially now that we're all, our work lives and our home lives are almost, you know, um, inextricably fused together because we're working from home. We have to accept that that, that whole person at work is, is who we work with. And we have to, we have to, you know, make every effort we can to get to know people well enough that we can trust when we'll, we'll, we'll talk up, we'll talk about the context, we'll talk about what's bothering us, we'll talk about what, you know, is, is, is troubling, right? We can't just be focused on the systems and the technology that will obviously occupy most of our days. But if we don't kind of open up to the context a little bit, 
um, we're going to end up, you know, leaving ideas on the table or, uh, you know, <laughs> stepping into, to, you know, horrible traps and pitfalls because we just, we, we, we lost our situational awareness. We lost the context. So one of the things that we often say is that stepping away from the agenda means maybe you start every meeting 10 minutes with everybody going around and saying what's on their mind or you know, what's different today, or there, there are lots of those sort of collective mindfulness kind of exercises. It doesn't have to be a big commitment of time, but just to get everybody centered and let the context be there rather than having the agenda just plow over everything. Mm -hmm. Under Underlying this is, is another point uh, that was highlighted by what a CEO told a group of, uh, of executives in, in my class at MIT, where every month different CEOs came and talked about themselves. This guy got on the podium and said, there's one thing I want you all to remember, that everything happens through conversation. Everything happens through conversation. So from a humble inquiry point of view, if every conversation is a consequential intervention of some sort, I think it's very important for people to ask themselves before they open their mouth, what am I trying to do in this conversation? Am I here to really give you some advice or am I here to find out what's going on? Or am I here to ask you for help? Uh, I think we tend to leap into conversations uh, without giving any thought to why are we here, what are we trying to do, forgetting that everything we say and do is an intervention that has consequences. So if I start out by telling you stuff, I'm already putting you down because it, it implies that you don't already know that. And that relation then becomes tilted. And then you later wonder, why is this person not telling me stuff? I forgot that I created that one downness by my marching in, in most conversations and always being the person who tells. And so sooner or later, my direct reports all become, yes, sir, and they stay quiet until I tell them something. I love that. Are you getting the point that, that how we enter conversations uh, creates the relationship? Mm -hmm. I love that point of just being conscious enough to say, what is it I want to achieve by this conversation ahead of time? And um, I can, I can, I'm already thinking of so many conversations I've had that have gone wrong. <laughs> Perhaps if I would have done that earlier uh, and had that conversation with myself in hindsight, it would have gone a different way. And I'm sure everyone listening can probably think of the set of many examples as well. So I lo absolutely love that advice. What, what do you? One thing we do in the uh, in the humble inquiry book that just came out um, is that we we do sort of try to give people a framework for different kinds of questions and uh, including some exercises at the end of the book to really start to test yourself if you're if you're understanding how might those best interventions happen how might i, I what what would be the right question to ask because it's you know it's it's complicated it's it's tricky and there's 
a framework for thinking of different kinds of questions. But one of the things that we, we often say is important to recognize is assuming that that sort of modicum of what, what's referred to as psychological safety, um, to say, okay, what's going on here? To just ask that question, so you're, you're working on a hard problem, you've got an impasse, you've got one faction in the room thinks one thing, the other faction in the room thinks the other thing, um, working through at the, the sort of the, the procedural level just isn't going to solve the problem. Um, asking each other sort of what they think, well, you already sort of know that. Um, <laughs> But if you if you sort of pull up and ask the process question, um, we refer to as process inquiry as dis distinct from other kinds of inquiry. Um, you know what's going on here? What we, do we have an impasse, or are we pretending we have an impasse, or what? You know, just pulling it up and saying what 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 are we doing to ourselves here? Mm -hmm. Not how am I going to win this argument, but what are we doing to ourselves because. Uh, if there's a winner, there's a loser, you know, these things shouldn't be zero sum. And if we ask the right questions, they won't be. Mm -hmm. But during all of your research, what have you seen as being the biggest challenge to helping some of these, let's say, old school leaders <laughs> adopt these new school or these new behaviors? If everything happens through conversation, then... <clears throat> The biggest challenge is how to build a relationship with someone who is old school, transactional, wants everyone in their proper role, is not really interested in forming any kind of personal relationship. Uh, I think in those instances, in my experience, the only way to get to that kind of a person is to work around an incident that that they don't like a scandal a something that went wrong and use that and say well can we talk about what went wrong here and soon we discover that what went wrong is that people didn't speak up there was lost information and gradually make it clear to that tough old bird that he or she created that environment where people didn't speak up. But you only get them there through looking at data. They're, they're, they wear blind spots uh, and uh, are not ready. Uh, I think the process of seduction in conversation is a not trivial matter that sometimes we have to work around to someone who doesn't want to look at something uh, and seduce them through information and through questions. Or uh, One of the, the biggest, biggest in intervention uh, methods I use is when people tell me stuff is to ask them for an example. It's amazing how if you force people to be concrete, it forces them to be more open. Mm -hmm. Love that. Did you want to add anything to that, Peter? Uh, no, no. I, that, that was pretty true. concise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
how, how is this, this is like, um, is it the second edition of the book or is that, was that right? Or is this or the first edition? That's, second? that's right. So the, the first edition of Humble Inquiry came out in 2013 and this is, this is the second edition. Yeah. What's uh, different? We changed it quite a bit. Yeah. What's different uh, about this book compared to the first? What have you added? Well, what Ed was talking about earlier where, um, the the initial book was really um ed's um hitting the boiling point on telling instead of asking that uh the both books start out with this story that um you know, that that will be quite recognizable of um uh an older woman woman coming up and just sort of telling something to ed uh, with no sense at all of what Ed knew and what what he was doing in the situation, and it just was this gratuitous and unnecessary kind of barking out of something that somebody knew. And for Ed, that sort of raised this, you know, yeah, we do that all the time, right? We we know something, and um, through our own insecurities or our own um, ambition we go in and just lay out what we know without having any sense of what other people know and what what they might know might be even be more relevant than what i know um and so that's where we, we emphasize this idea of here and now humility because you, you 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 may have much more to gain by accepting that no you actually don't know and um by posing the right kinds of questions you start to draw a much bigger uh, information frame to act within. Mm -hmm. um, so the the but so the second book, the other thing that we try to do is we put some exercises in at the end, so that so that there was a way to actually drill what we're talking about. Because on the one hand, this stuff is is as simple as 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 socialization. It's as simple as when we first learned how to get to know people at school. Um, but on the other hand, it's really hard to fight back some of the impulses and some of the conventions that we've been taught in whether it was in, in business school or in uh, any sort of training programs for, for life at work. We still have a kind of a mid-century model of you know, organizations as well-oiled machines and top-down command and control. Well, I don't think the most successful, innovative uh, young companies out there are designed that way, but so much management training still focuses on those kinds of, you know, stay in your lane, work the problem, mm -hmm. you know, don't, don't get too close to people at work, maintain professional distance. Yeah. Well, we really think that that's last century and that, uh, if you really want to be creative and and dynamic and flexible and adaptive systems at work, um, maintaining professional distance isn't helpful. And, and you can so, see that, right? Over the last year, since even COVID has shined a spotlight on that, right? In terms of leading with empathy and people are now more connected than ever. We're seeing it into each other's home lives through Zoom, literally into their homes. And, right. uh, you know, that whole I'm a manager you're on my team, you don't have a relationship. That, that's, that seems so prehistoric. <laughs> yeah, and, and in, in some respects, this is gonna be, I think the history is gonna write that the, uh, that the, you know, the video-based 
convening at work actually taught us some really valuable lessons. And, um, you know, it's ironic because in, in the humble leadership book, we talk a lot about it. Is it possible that in this, in this sort of video and, you know, mobile future, um, that doesn't rely on actual contemporaneous meeting between three dimensional human beings, um, is it possible that that we're going to still be able to function um, in the in the way that's that's creative and innovative and and really draws people out? And I think whatever we said a few years ago when we wrote humble leadership, I think we already know um, that humans are are better at um, getting close to each other over um, you know remote video than we would have ever imagined. I, yeah. I think in some respects, it's made us, it's taught us new things, important new skills. I agree. Uh, that we wouldn't have anticipated. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of wonderful. Yeah. Could you share one of those exercises you share in the book for our audience, something practical that they could perhaps um, take away and do with yeah, their teams? The, uh, um, well, so so we what we do is we present um, a number of different situations. Some of them are personal. Some of them are are a work situation. So um, the, just just to to sort of simplify one of the examples, um, you're uh, you're entering a new team, and um, you know something about the people in this group in this on this team because you've seen their resumes. Uh, you know, you're, it, it, it's a, it's a sort of, a, it's, it's the third reorg of the week at work and, uh, um, it happens all the time. Right. And, um, so, but you're in a situation of, you know, who these people are, but you don't know them. What are you going to do? What kinds of questions are you going to ask to start to sort of draw everybody closer so that you can say, well, I'm not, I may not be friends with all these people. Um, but I know who they are. I know where they're coming from. I know that they're going to trust me and I'm going to trust them. So we present some examples of how you might, um, how you might kind of start to pry open that challenge. How would you, what kinds of questions would you raise to, to draw people in, to, to draw out who they really are? Mm -hmm. Ed, do you want to add to that? Just that, uh, the, the phrase, access your ignorance, becomes important. You, you could approach that meeting as, as the leader with telling them all about yourself. That's choice one. But then, of course, you're going to not learn very much. Or you could approach that same meeting with... Uh, Say, I'm new here, and I really don't know why any of you are in this group, to take it to a very extreme position. And I'd love to hear from each of you why you're in this group. Or you could say, what we're here to do is A, B, and C. How do you all feel about that? And so if we pose these different alternatives, we ask the reader to say, choose one. And then in the next section of the book, we discuss what each alternative implies. 
and what kind of relationship it would build with the group. So they can practice and say, well, I think I would do this one. And then they read, oh, that, that's the best way to shut people up. <laughs> We're not that crass in our evaluative statements. But the idea is to seduce people into saying, what would you say as the chair of this group? And then showing how the different alternatives from which they might pick have very different consequences. Love that. It's a super, super practical for anyone then to pick up. At, at, at the same time that we, we will vary from the very outset, say there's no right answers here, right? This is, this is, this is human beings who are trying to, trying to build relationships and, and um, there's no, there may be marginally better answers in our, from our point of view, but all of this is going to be learning how you learn to do it. And, um, uh, I, think, I, I do want to throw in this wonderful example of the Captain Marquet and his book, Turn the Ship Around, how he approached taking over a new nuclear submarine as the captain of the ship, bringing all his uh, <clears throat> chief petty officers into the room and saying, I'd like to hear from you what's wrong with this submarine. What, what do we need to fix? And they sat there dumbfounded that the captain would ask such a question when they all assumed he knew exactly what he wanted to do differently. But he insisted and they finally trusted him enough. And one of the things that came out immediately is that they had a leave policy that was very destructive because it needed six signatures before a sailor could get off the sub when they were in port. And so people were totally frustrated. And Captain Marquay said, well, I can fix that. We'll, we'll just have two signatures. Now, the point of the story is he would never have known that the leave policy was one of the biggest demoralizing forces on that submarine, mm -hmm. except for his very open asking questions and meaning it. I really need to know, guys. You run the submarine, so you surely know what's wrong. You've got to tell me. Yeah. Assu assuming we have the answers is our first mistake. Ed, you, I've seen you speak quite a few times now about diagnosis versus intervention. Could you share more of your thoughts on this? Because I found it really interesting. Well, I, I think the, the thing we haven't yet come to terms with is a phrase that, uh, that an important philosopher by the name of Vickers stated is that human systems are different. Human systems are uh, not amenable to physical science, diagnosis, research, testing, experimentation. The minute we try to intervene in the human system, we discover reactions and consequences. So diagnosis as an offshoot of research is something that may work in biology or physics or chemistry, but is absolutely impossible to do in the human system. So I need to know stuff. So I have to intervene in such a way that it will produce knowledge. 
And to call that research is really ridiculous because the researcher is in charge, controls everything. The interventionist starts with the, with humility and says, how, how can I, like Captain Marquet, create a situation where I will learn what I need to learn? So the ethics of intervention have to guide that process. What can I say or do that will not offend people, that will interest them, that will get them to open up? That, as a, as a way of diagnosing, is legitimate, but it's informed not by the needs of the diagnostician. It's informed by the ethics of the interventionist. It's, it's what I say and do has an effect and I want to do it in such a way that I will get the diagnostic information I need. The doctor has to build the trust of the patient that the, that the patient will actually tell truthfully what's going on, or there will even be a wrong diagnosis. And I think medicine is learning very quickly this idea of doctors building uh, a, a humble level two relationship I, I say level two in contrast to level one, pure distant diagnostic role related versus level two personalized uh, intervention, uh, humility oriented. I love that. that and, and you mentioned the word there that you talk about more now, which is personalization. Uh, and, and that seems to be, again, over the last year, we're realizing the way people work, the, 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 the new world of work is going to ro- revolve around personalization. There's no longer this one size fits all approach for our employees and our teams. And many organizations structures are still designed in that way where there's a one size fits all structure. Exactly. Yeah. But we also have to add that, that, um, through sort of creative mistake, um, we ended up trying to refine that idea a little bit in the Humble Leadership book where the creative mistake was that Ed was writing that word on whiteboard and and wrote it out as personization, left the AL out. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so, you know, from, from accident or typo comes insight. And what what we realized is that to your point there, yes, there's all sorts of personalization of HR programs, you know, uh, basically a custom tailored stack of HR benefits that every employee defines. And that's awesome. That That's like we're getting to a world where everything is bespoke. Mm-hmm. Um you know, with sort of immediate sort of real-time manufacturing, we can, for no extra cost, we can design exactly what we want. And that's the sort of the future of personalization. What we were talking about with personization is this idea that I'm going to build a whole person-to-whole-person relationship with you within the bounds of propriety at work. We, that we always have to caveat that. We're not expecting that everybody's going to you know be at work the same the way they are at home but building that level of openness and trust that process again that we call personizing um because it goes a little bit beyond the idea of personalizing personalizing Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. you can know somebody's role so well that you can personalize your behavior toward that role. But that's not the same as personizing, which is getting to that, again, what we refer to as a level two relationship, where there's a degree of openness and trust that you will share information that the role itself didn't require you to share. Yeah. What what do you see um the kind of the future of humble leadership in terms of it, how it relates to the impact on culture? Well, I think the argument, the fundamental argument is that the nature of work has become complex, interdependent, ambiguous, unpredictable. And in that situation, uh, organizations have to shape shift, groups have to reconstitute themselves, new skills are constantly needed. And in that situation, the old stable culture of everything is done by rule and by role simply doesn't solve the problems anymore. Managers and leaders are finding, I, I have to shift people around, I have to get rid of obsolete people and hire new skills. Uh, I have to reconstitute my organization all the time, which means that we're in an age of, of with, especially with the young companies, building a whole set of new organizational cultures that are gonna look different. And I think the, the large old co uh, companies are having trouble with innovation because their culture is an inhibiting force. And so one of the things we have to watch is how the, the new generations and especially new companies run, run by younger people are developing basically new cultural forms to get the work done the technology is forcing on us. Nobody wants to be complex by choice, but when COVID arose, it introduced levels of complexity that, that no one even imagined in terms of manufacturing, creating a vaccine, manufacturing it, supplying it. I mean, all these things were thrown into uh, chaos and that, makes it harder for old-style cultures to deal with it. One of the things that we talk about at the beginning of, um, of the Humble Leadership book is we very much buy into this VUCA idea that yeah. um, all of us are dealing with uh, degrees of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And um, that's, just a, that's just a function of the century that we live in. Um, but I do feel like we've learned from the pandemic in a way that the bigger problem we have now um, that we were, you know, orienting our org organizations before the pandemic around the pace of change and around the complexity that that engendered. So the, the V, the, the volatility and complexity were uh, sort of, you know, in my, in, in some senses, those, those were the, the, the central drivers of how we were responding to this, this sense of the accelerating change. But now I think post-pandemic, we may be realizing 
that it's the uncertainty and ambiguity that are 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 tougher problems for us to tackle now. Obviously, the economic hit and the economic recovery are things that we're going to have to deal with, but the um, the uncertainty and the ambiguity of how people come out of all of this, this, this human process of coming out of the sort of global trauma of, um, of the pandemic, I think changes our sense of, of, of this VUCA concept. What do we have to attend to first? And that idea that if we sort of accept that it's the uncertainty and ambiguity that's going to be most challenging for people, that makes it even more important to start being open and honest about the context that we're in, not assume that we're going back to some old normal. We know that we're talking about a new normal that's completely uncertain and completely ambiguous. And the good news is we get to, we get to define it. We get to, we get to build it. But it it's 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 going to be hard for people. It's this is a whole it's a whole dealing with a whole bunch of stuff that we that that's deeply personal mm-hmm. that we hadn't really hadn't had to grapple with before. And I think things will be new, but the word that's going to get us into trouble is the word normal. <laughs> I, I, I the, the whole new normal. Yeah, we don't like that. <laughs> there's yeah. no there's no, no such thing as normal anymore. It just is. <laughs> it just is. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, Ed, if you don't mind me asking a personal question, um, I think I've got this correct. Uh, at, at 92 years old, what is it that keeps you motivated? 93? Okay, 93 years old. Sorry, I got that wrong. Uh, 93 years old. Sorry to age you even more. Uh, 93 years old. What is it that keeps you motivated and that allows you to keep disrupting Ed every year? And your own thinking. Well, I I could give you a <clears throat> a socially desirable answer. I could give you an honest answer. Uh, the honest answer is, I grew up uh, in my first ten years in a in a multicultural situation. Six years in Switzerland, three years in the Soviet Union, a year in Czechoslovakia then Chicago and growing up in the U.S., uh, then going to a business school instead of an academic department and trying to figure out what the hell this leadership management stuff is all about, then being given the opportunity to go to a human relations lab where I had to learn experiential learning, what the hell is that all about? And then having a chance to become a consultant to make some extra money, which professors need to do, and discovering I didn't know a thing about how to be a helpful consultant until I slowly learned. I think life has taught me to be constantly a learner because uh, the situations I confronted in order to be successful in them has required being open to what's going on and what's new. And that's just become a habit of a lifetime to be cautious, to look carefully what's going on, to examine context. Don't leap in because leaping in generally leads to near drowning or worse, 
getting thrown out. So I, I think the honest answer is it's the only way I know how to be. Love that. No, I appreciate your honesty. And I think many people can learn from that um, and who will be going through the similar situations that you are. I, I, I'm, I'm, I was really taken back in our original conversation of the continued passion that you have for your work. And it was inspiring for me to walk away as someone who's kind of relatively new on their career journey to see someone like yourself who's just so passionate about having an impact on the world. Um, well, it's not incidental that one of the most exciting, positive learning is this relationship with Peter. You know, how to, do, how to be a, a parent and a colleague and a co-writer and have, have him and all his new views, something I now have to take into account. And that's also combined with the fact that I moved out here because of him and his family being out here. And so I learned a lot through his two daughters because now there's a, another generation with new views. So it's, it's positively exciting uh, to, to have all this novelty in my life. Amazing. And Ed uh, has uh, a COVID great-grandson. <laughs> who's uh, I guess he's what is he about seven months or something another generation <laughs> yeah and and the, but the thing is I, I think just to 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 emphasize that point um Ed's not just going to be you know loving this kid because he's family Ed's going to be looking at this kid and thinking what is the what is his world going to be like it's sort of it, it it it's you know our family kind of uh, allows us and in some respect forces us to think about the future right that's sort of the uh the the the, the nature of of you know why we build families right we, mm -hmm. we want to build that next generation and they're going to build that next generation and so i i do think that ed doesn't really talk about himself as a futurist but i think ed's been a futurist all along um in in his own way i think that's reflected um, in the wonderful. work i think it's reflected in the work as you reflected in and i think the work you're doing is as we've discussed is important now more than ever given yeah. the world that we live in uh which is why i was really excited when you reached out i was like yes of course i want to share this with our audience <laughs> um so i really appreciate you both taking the time out to share your experience with everyone time, at the same time I am acutely aware of how difficult it is to get the world of management and leadership to pay attention to this levels of relationship stuff. I think we have built a monster of a machine age, industrial uh, managerial culture that is still all about when I'm a manager, I get to tell people what to do. It's best to have professional distance. Everyone has a role, stay in your lane. That is a monstrous force that I feel completely inhibiting reality and seeing what's really going on. And it's very frustrating to see how little this message of pay attention to your people, get to know them, uh, how little of that really has gotten across. 
well, look, we're gonna we're gonna do our part. <laughs> we're, we're the part that we can play, and this this message is certainly gonna get to a lot of people as well. And so is your book. Um, that being said, if there's sort of a a parting piece of advice you want to give to our audience, you know, what would that be? And then where's the best place people can grab a copy of the book and learn more about your work? Well, I'll, I, I, I have a parting thought, but just quickly, the, the logistics that are OCLI.org is our website. Um, the book's available on, uh, on certainly all of the English language variants of Amazon and other online uh, resellers. It's a Barrett Kohler book. They're pretty good about getting wide distribution once they release. So hopefully you can find it. It's a $20 paperback and it's about 140 pages long. So it's uh, hopefully thought provoking, but it's not going to kill you. It's not. A big <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> and I, I mentioned that because the, some of the reviews on Amazon have 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 said it's it's a quick read and and it's like yeah good we we wanted it to be we didn't want this to to really hit you like a ton of bricks so but hopefully there's some nuggets in there that that are useful um for for my sort of i i just guess i'd want to add a parting quote of the day and this is something that that's that, that came back to me recently and it's from a it's from a t.s Eliot, a little known t.s Eliot work from 1934 um, where he was sort of des describing kind of the challenge of man. And he referred to um, dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. And that idea that we try to, we try to instrument everything, we try to automate everything, we analyze this and we diagnose that, and then we could, based on that, we make predictions, but we forget to be good. We forget to, and that could, good could mean so many different things, but in our sense, it means being human and being focused on the other people that you work with is what good means to me. So don't get too caught up dreaming about systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. Allow time for people to be good at work. Amazing. Ed, do you want anything, Ed? I think that's as good a final word as any, so I'm going to let Peter have it. <laughs> what a nice dad you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. For everyone listening, if you're listening right now, the link in the description, you can already grab a copy of the book by the link in the, wherever, wherever you're listening, whether it's LinkedIn, the podcast, click the link below, grab a copy of the book um, as well. Also make sure you check out the website. But apart from that, Ed, Peter, really appreciate all of the work that you do, the impact that you're having on the world. Um, I don't think you're stopping anytime soon. It seems like you're both full of energy and life to keep going. So love that. And um, I, I wish you all the best until we next week. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Enjoy this. Thank you.